And I thought of all the sports in the world that I'm thinking of, football is probably the sport in the world that you need creativity, adaptability, thinking quickly on your feet. And there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to being a good player. Welcome to the Liverpool FA podcast. Our aim is to provide regular insight from a variety of experts to help you in your own football journey. We'll do it through interviews, roundtable discussions and by linking to other resources to help support you. For more information about each episode, just tap the album art, which will provide you with more about our guests and links to further content. Welcome back. We've had a few weeks off, so thanks for your patience in getting this next episode out. In this episode, we speak to Cliff Olsen. Cliff is a senior lecturer in sports coaching at the University of Central Lancashire, and he's also a coach mentor for the FA. Cliff and I had a wide-ranging conversation and delved into topics such as the role of the coach, critical thinking and reflective practice. Cliff is a learner on the UEFA B at the moment and was kind enough to share some of the work that he's been doing within his grassroots club around the identity of the club and how his coaching philosophy fits within that. So we think you'll enjoy this one, particularly if you're a coach on the level two or UEFA B. Just an update on the last episode that Amy Price was kind enough to record with us. As promised, Amy's CPD session down at Surrey FA earlier this month was videoed by our colleague Pete Augustine, and Pete was kind enough to send me the video, which I've now put up on YouTube, so you can find that one by searching for Amy Price Video Game Design Surrey FA on YouTube, and we'll link that one up in the show notes as well. So a few more updates for you. Over the coming months, we've got a number of events at Liverpool FA that you might well be interested in if you're in the local area. So on the 10th of April, we have a free CPD event around planning and effective delivery. That's at the County FA. On the 9th of May, we've got a mentoring adults course again at the County FA. On the 17th of May, we've got a event around pre-season training. And we're delighted to announce that on the 31st of May, We'll be having Pete Sturgis, our National Foundation Phase lead, coming down to Liverpool to make his debut. He'll be delivering a CPD event around the England DNA Foundation Phase. So plenty going on and all those can be booked onto via liverpoolfa.com. That's all for now. So we hope you enjoy this one with Cliff Olsen. Okay, Cliff. Great to see you. Thanks to you, Jack. Thanks for coming on. And uh, typically, we've just spent the last hour catching up. I know we should have recorded that. I know we? we should have. Yeah, it's uh, it's been good. It's great to see you again, and it's been it's been a while now. But I was really keen to to get you on to discuss uh, your experiences of coaching, coach development, mentoring, and the research that you're doing up here at, at Central Lancs. So, yeah, University of Central Lancashire. Yeah, so um, before we start though, the wristband. Uh, oh, right, right to play. Right to play, yeah. Tell us how that came about and, and the kind of story that led to you having one of those those wristbands that uh, I don't well, see too often anymore. Well, as, as, as I'm sure you're aware, sort of my life has been dominated by sport and particularly sport development and the role of sport in making a contribution to what we might call wider social agendas. Um, I 
got involved with the agency Right to Play, who are based in in uh, in Canada, who in effect use sport as a development tool to support global development, some of the global development agendas. And uh, a number of years ago, um, I wrote a module which is still running here at the university called Sport for Development and Sport, sorry, Sport for International Development. And it's an opportunity, and it's one of only a few. Uh, modules, I think, in the countries uh, that that's delivered, looking at how sport can make uh, an impact on the lives of millions of people living in developing countries, and so it tackles issues around poverty, HIV, um, you know, all, all these sort of issues, and uh, and and sport and the agency right to play are, are such an organisation, global organisation um, that uses sport to, to tackle those agendas um, and as part of that project um, we now take students uh, from the University of Central Lancashire to Zambia to work with an agency called Sport in Action um, and they work in some of the most disadvantaged communities on the planet um, primarily using sport to engage young people to promote health key messages, life skill messages around HIV, sexual health, gender equity um, so, so uh, yeah, that, that's a really interesting project that I'm involved with. Yeah, he's still involved now with them. Very much so. Yeah. Um, more with sports, uh, sport and action in Zambia. Um, and in fact, just this morning, um, I've been booking the flights for our students next May. Um, we've uh, we've booked all their accommodation. And they go out there for three weeks to work on a project in, in, in a place called Cabway, which is just on the margins of the Copper Belt. And then at the end of three weeks... Uh, we take them down to uh, Livingston where they see the, the falls, the Victoria Falls, they do a safari, uh, they do a dinner boat cruise, you know, see hippo and giraffe and elephant and all this sort of thing. So it's a, it's a quite a unique experience and of course coming from an applied background in sports coaching, um, I, I don't really think it's good enough anymore just to offer students the opportunity to learn about stuff in a classroom. Mm. If they can actually have experiences outside of the classroom uh, and apply some theoretical knowledge, um, then I think it makes them better learners and hopefully in the longer term um, puts them in a position where they can make more value contribution you know, to, to society. But, I know those are lofty ideals, but if we don't aspire to those lofty ideals within education, then uh, what are we aspiring to? Yeah, good point. Tell us a bit about your early experiences and how you got involved into coaching in the first place and a, l a little bit about your story and, and how yeah. you ended up here now. Um, interesting story. Um, I'm now looking back, I think it was an advantage that I wasn't from a football background. That's not to say I didn't enjoy football. I played football like most young lads in the northeast because there wasn't a lot else to do really we weren't really into cricket um so so we i played lots and lots of football uh, with a lot of mates but coming from that area there was a lot of good footballers so it was always very difficult to get into even your school football team um but i i played for the school football team but realized that that's about as far as it would would go for me because you know we, we played with against and with some outstanding players who went on and played professional football um, but around the time 77, 78 I was, I was only about 11 or 12 or something and the World Table Tennis Championships were on and I was inspired by these table tennis players I, I thought they were dynamic exciting and the thing with table tennis it was immediately accessible because all youth clubs 
had table tennis tables. And in fact, I had quite a large dining room table. So me and all my mates played table tennis in our dining room table. That you were popular with your Oh, mom. God, yeah. So, so we, we tended to do that when my mum and dad were out at work. And we had tournaments to play around the table, vases and all sorts. I still don't think she knows the number of ornaments I smashed. What did you use for a net? Oh, books. Books, Oh, yeah. books, absolutely. Books, yeah. absolutely. And and we really got, got into table tennis. And fortunately, it was a, a local table tennis club nearby. And, and me and a good mate of mine, um, still really good mate of mine, joined the table tennis club. And, and within a relatively short period of time, um, we were playing, you know, county table tennis. And then within, by the time of 16, 17, 18, we were playing men's county table tennis. And, and we were some of the best players in our county. And then that... That moved on to playing National League and, and playing around a circuit of tournaments. and So, so table tennis w- was my sport. And, and I didn't have any coaching initially. In fact, no coaching, if I was absolutely honest. I just played against better players. And I played in different environments, on different tables. What were those different environments? Well, some environments were in sports halls. Some environments were in, were in pubs. You know, there's a room, there's a shady room upstairs where some, old, some three old blokes who've been playing table tennis for 25 years and have had hard bats all their lives, would play up in that really dark room. So how um, would you have to adapt? Well, um, there was nowhere to run back to, so you had to play really close to the table. Um, some of the lighting, was you, you could hardly see the ball. Um, the, it wasn't just adapting of the, the environment, but the guys you would play against had different types of bats, hard bats. We had sponge bats. You know, and the ball would be doing different things depending on whether it had pimples out or long pimples or short pimples or hard bat. What's the, it tells us about the pimples, is that the surface yeah, of the, the bat? Yeah, the surface of the bat. Yeah. So depending on the type of surface that the person was playing against you would then be depending on what sort of spin came over the other side of the net. So you had to adapt all the time. And of course the variance of, of, of the way people played was, was phenomenal. And people that we might say couldn't walk and chew at the same time, who were brilliant table tennis players, I was always, you know, if you asked them to catch a ball, they couldn't do it. Put them on a table tennis table with a bat, and, and they were phenomenal. And, and, and so there wasn't, there wasn't a model of a good table tennis player. I couldn't walk into a room and say, he's a good player because he looks like this. You really didn't know until you started playing them. Did you know that at the time then? So you were 18, did you say, when you... Not really. That was just the way it was. But by the time I did get to 1920, and I started to look at all these different variants of table tennis players, and some of them, like Desmond Douglas, played table tennis. He was number one in, in, in England at the time, one of the top 12 in the world. He literally would stand virtually on top of the table. And every everything technically that you knew about table tennis that would be the worst place in the world to stand yet he was one of the best players in Europe so why did he do that because he, he, he played his table tennis uh, at school the table was back up against the wall and there was no run back at all so he had no choice so I start think well how on earth do you coach table tennis when you haven't got a prescribed model to coach against and because I was a half decent player more and more people want me to coach them because the, the assumption is good player good coach well I, I don't know the first thing about coaching well what do I know about coaching so I went on, on your level one level two coaching courses and they give you sort of a framework to work with 
And it was that framework that I began to realise that all they are giving you, and this is where I, I, I give the English Table Tennis Association at the time, what they were called, a lot of credit, is they recognise that there isn't a prescribed model of coaching. And you've actually got to work with what you've got. And you've actually got to utilise the skills, abilities, aspirations, motivations of those players. And you've got to work with that. And to be able to, be able to do that, the skills that you actually need to develop isn't about the knowledge of the game. It's actually having strong interpersonal skills, being adaptable. Because I might coach somebody in a room that is too small for the sort of activities I want to do. Their style of play might not fit with the way I would like to play or even like to coach them. The bat that they use might not offer them the opportunity to topspin the ball. So what's the point of me really showing them how to topspin the ball? So all the time I had to adapt what coaching knowledge I did have or knowledge about the game to fit the requirements of the environment and the performers. And also I learned a really, really clever trick and this is a completely pragmatic trick is that because I knew I had limitations in my coaching, I wanted to get paid and I wasn't sure if I was good enough coach to actually improve these performers. But one way I could guarantee to improve these performers is tell them, now when I look back, I'll be honest with you, I think it was more conning them to believe that they were improving. So as long as I could lead them towards a place where they believed they were improving, they would actually improve. What method did you use to do that? Um, tell them how good they were <laughs> and how much they'd improved and what their strengths were. And of course, I realised, even at 19, 20, 21, if you continually keep providing positive, constructive feedback, at worst, they'll be motivated. If they are motivated, there's a pretty good chance they'll practice, even with you not there. And if they practice, there's a good chance that they'll improve. Irrespective of how technically poor they are, they will most likely improve. And of course, these souls were very happy to part with their £20 for my coaching fee on the understanding or the belief that they were improving. So I realised very quickly that being an effective coach is more than simply having lots of knowledge about the game. And yes, I, was, I, was, uh, I played sort of a, a decent standard, a decent level, but that doesn't necessarily translate into being technically a proficient and effective coach. But I could survive being a coach by being cute with my time and being cute about how I managed the coaching process and sort of developed really strong interpersonal skills. Now, now that sort of leads me on to, to, to sort of my next coaching experience. And because after a while I realised coaching table tennis is not, is not going to make me a millionaire and it's not going to make me particularly famous and it certainly won't attract the women so, <laughs> so, so here we go table tennis is not, is not really the, the, the game life lesson for all yeah, yeah, I, I think so, so I thought well football is, is, is a little bit more sexy than, than table tennis, I was a little bit more money in it and it just so happened the table tennis club that I was playing for at the time actually their facility was located at Sunderland football training ground so during the day it was a training ground for the club at night it converted into a like a leisure centre type place but I got sort of quite friendly terms with, with the guys who worked for Sunderland Football Club 
And in 1987, I think it was, or 86, somewhere around there, um, the first centre of excellence, national centre of excellence, which was on the Lillishaw, but the first regional one, was opened at Sunderland Football Club by Sir Bobby Robson. Okay. And he came down the first to open it, and he also did a coaching session, like an hour and a half coaching session. All the press were there, cameras. And they asked me, could I assist them? As in just collecting cones and balls and, you know, be a runner for them. But I w- sort of my claim to fame, if you like, I spent an hour and a half with Bobby Robson watching him coach. What did you learn? Oh, I, I, I was amazed. I was amazed by... I say I was amazed. His, his really strong interpersonal skills, his, real, his ability to engage people, build rapport with people. And these were the kids, 13, 14, build rapport with people. And again, it sort of reinforced my view of coaching at the time, at a relatively young age, that coaching is more than just having lots and lots of knowledge. Because the messages that I delivered to these kids were, were simple enough. I could have delivered them, you could have delivered them, Jack. Mm. But it was, it was the way he delivered them and the rapport that he built with these kids. And the kids really bought into, and it, it sort of helps that he's England manager, I, I take that on board. But it was a little bit deeper than that. And from that experience, um, because our, our football, because the, the, the table tennis club was based at the football club, um, I had the opportunity, lucky as I was, to do my prelim through the football club. I, I just got to know sort of uh, George Burley, who, who's now a manager, and uh, and I got to know some of the players just purely because that's where I used to train. And eventually, I did my prelim. The guy called Arthur Phyllis Kirk. I still I think still think he's going on. And I enjoyed that, um, and, and I passed that, my, my old prelim. And then I got a job um, in America, working for North American Soccer Camps. Um, and North American Soccer Camps was was ran by a, 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 quite an interesting chap, um, a guy called Dr. Gary Russell. And he was an educational psychologist, but he loved soccer, as it was to Americans. And that's where I was first introduced to the concepts of TGFU, Teaching Games for Understanding. And, uh, and by this time, I'd, I'd gone back to university. I was 21. And one of my lecturers um, sort of start, talked to me about TGFU, which I, I didn't know a lot about, but I could make the links between the work that I was doing in America under, with North America, sort of came playing lots of games and having fun and enjoyment and teaching games for understanding. So I sort of made those linkages. So when eventually I, I graduated from university and I got a job here in the Northwest at Blackburn College, uh, one guy I came across, he was just coming towards the end of his football career, his professional football career, Chris Sully, he was doing some teaching practice at, at the college I worked at. So I, I struck up a friendship with Chris Sully and Chris was coming towards the end of his football career and he was just taking up a position as Centre of Excellence Manager for Press North End. That's right. So I don't know if you know Chris is back working He's back with the FA now. now. Yeah. And I've kept in touch with Chris ever since. And he eventually asked, you know, would I join him at Press North End as Centre of Excellence Coach? I took the under 12, said, yeah, absolutely. You know, good experience. You got a little bit of money, but it was really the experience I was looking for and, and, and the glamour of working in professional football. 
which wasn't that glamorous in the press north end at the time. But Did they that, still have the AstroTurf pitch there? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and if it was a windy night, you turn around and all the balls are being blown down in the bottom corner, all that sort of know stuff. Know that feeling well. Yeah. yeah, it was all that sort of stuff. And, uh, but I loved it. it. It was a great experience. Um, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. But I think this was the, was the next part of a really formative introduction to coaching and and I began to really question coaching practice and and that was I was I was always amazed how highly prescriptive and structured football coaching was compared to my previous background from table tennis so what were the differences the main differences were if I can just explain to, to table tennis very very quickly in, in table tennis you get as I sort of articulated earlier, you get such a variance in playing styles, different types of spins, different types of bats that do different sorts of things, um, different environments to play in. There isn't one, you know, in a football pitch, it's, the pitches are all the same, more or less, in size. Uh, well, I suppose maybe at the elite end, but I, I would say if you look at the range of the size of pitches... Yeah that you could have a, a huge range from yeah. as long as it's rectangular and, and fits within the boundaries yeah uh, but remember this was the early 90s and and pff, 11 12 year olds were playing on full size pitches yeah, as was I yeah uh, so, so it just seemed to me even at that time that didn't quite seem to fit but you're making the point about different size pitches and we used to train on different size pitches but the coaching was nearly always the same and it was like we had to follow a prescribed model. And I did the, um, I obviously did my prelim a few years earlier, but I also enrolled to do a, I forgot what the name of the course was, but it was a transition course from prelim to level two. And then I had some aspirations to doing the full badge. But when I did the transition course, what really struck me was how prescriptive the coach educators were about what is expected when you're a coach when you're coaching this this is what a good player looks like this is what a good coach looks like and it, it was to the point where you know when you did your final assessment you had to have your socks pulled up um, you had to have these key points you had to have certain starting positions and they had to be what they said realistic and often if you if you deliver it coaching session they'll say oh that's an unrealistic starting position that always amazed me because I thought well do you watch football the number of goals I've seen they're calamitous I've seen goalkeepers throw the ball into their own net so how can you say that's not a realistic starting position but the thing that really struck me compared to my earlier experiences certainly in table tennis was how prescriptive and structured football coaching was and I thought of all the sports in the world that I'm thinking of Football is probably the sport in the world that you need creativity, adaptability, thinking quickly on your feet. And there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to being a good player. Yet here we are, we've got coaches that are presenting football in a one-size-fits-all. In a, in a real clear model and this, this is how you defend, this is what you do in this position, this is what you do in that position. And I, I struggled a little bit with that. I really did struggle a little bit with that. And of course, you know, being a novice football coach as such, the opportunity to challenge those 
approaches was a, was a dangerous game because potentially you're undermining your colleagues or or the, the head coach and that's where I was incredibly fortunate because Chris Chris Sully was not of that mindset at all and I had a real opportunity to often question him sometimes even at the point he might even see it interrogate him on bus journeys when we were going off to you know a, a game in Sheffield or a game in Carlisle and it was those those times on the bus or in the car or wherever, when we used to have long chats and I would like to think his development also was enhanced by those chats because I know mine was and then eventually he moved to Blackburn Rovers and I, worked, I went with him and I worked with Alan Irvine and again really fortunate again that interrogating and questioning Alan about why they do what they do and wouldn't it be better to do this and why can't we do that they never really took offence because there is, a, there is a danger isn't there that you know who, who are you Cliff yeah. how many games have you played in the Premier League or something like that but they weren't like that at all and I think certainly Chris I think welcomed the challenge because all he'd known in football was other football people and there was a, an environment where everybody agreed with everybody else whereas here's me come from table tennis and some stuff just didn't stack up so were table tennis ahead of the game do you think looking back time? yeah I think there were yeah. I think there were I'm not sure if that was by accident or design yeah. but, but, but I, I think there were because I think my experience from football and I'm, I'm not sure if it's just this country because of the the, the, the status and the amount of money that, that's in football I, I do sometimes wonder if they are continually striving for the holy grail so they want a, a one size fits all simple answer that if we follow this process we'll produce a world class winning team and, and the, it, I, I sometimes wonder if they want it in a formula you know and, and the number of formulas that I've seen come to our shores uh, you know, 4v4, 9v9. Well, it, it's part of a package, but it's not the answer. I don't know what we'll do. We'll go and watch Ajax. This is 20 years ago. We'll watch them and see what they do. Well, we'll do all the Corva stuff. You know, so that's the answer. We'll, we'll do all the Corva stuff, you know, da dancing around cones. Right, great, right. Well, where do we go now? Well, I don't know what. We'll go to France. They won the World Cup in 90 years. They've got Claire Fontaine. Let's do what they do in France. All oh, right, okay, that, that hasn't quite worked. Well, who now? Well, we'll go to Spain. We'll go to Spain. Ticket tacker, ticket tacker football. That's it. That's what we'll do. We'll follow that. All right, okay, that hasn't quite worked. Where now? Well, Germany. Germany. That's what. What is Germany doing? And it's trying. And I, I do sometimes wonder if they're trying to find a one size magic pill that will problem solve all the issues that we might have in, in football. Is that part of, part of the wider kind of hack culture that mm, is so. prevalent today I think so I th I th it, it could be um, I mean you, you know my other passion as well is, is that linkage between culture and sport and culture and football and this is probably we'll save that for another podcast in a, in a couple yeah. of years time because you know I'm you know because my, my master's is in sports sociology and history I'm very much into the you know play up play up and play the game and how, did, how has that led to to the type of football cultures we have now and of course coming from the north east Newcastle and Sunderland the, the biggest crowd pleaser on a Saturday afternoon apart from a goal is the centre forward clobber and the centre half that, you know? uh, yeah and that's definitely something that I've learnt a lot since we first met probably the best part of a decade ago now yeah. when we were 
um, first started uh, educating coaches together. So I do want to pick your brains about that, but maybe maybe another another time. Um, you surprised me when you talked about the the table tennis players and the, the range of variants that you can play that game when you were explaining it to me. And I've been lucky that I've been exposed or I was exposed to a really large number of sports when I was growing up at high school. So I've come to appreciate or just enjoy different sports and games. Mm-hmm. And this is purely theory of mine, but I'm, I'm pretty convinced that if you take the rules or the laws of, of football and you look at the objective of the game, um, yes. you're, it's an invasion game, you're manipulating a spherical ball and the only things that the outfield players can't use to manipulate that ball is their arms and hands. Yeah. And then if you look at how unrestrictive the laws of the game are, where people can go, mm. the freedom that they've got on the pitch... That's led me, the more I've thought about it, to come up with this belief that football is the most complex of all sports in terms of the skills that it demands of those who play it. So when you talk to me about the the table tennis players having a a wide variance, it leads me to think back of how many different ways there are to play the game and how many different styles of player that you are, you know, even just watching local park game on a, on a Saturday or Sunday morning and just looking at all the different shapes and sizes that you see certainly around 13, 14, 15 and see how even just their body type and their physicality yeah. shapes the way in which they play the game Well you, you now looking at, at football with the same eyes I came to look at football because you're absolutely right yet the way we coached it and it has improved a hell of a lot don't get me wrong but the way we coached it was was quite prescriptive, not terribly dynamic and and we expected I think players to fit in those boxes. This is the way you head a ball, this is the way this is where how you finish, this is where you put a cross in, this is where you put the cross in. I'm going, well, you know, for every time you show me how to do it, I can show you another ten ways that's been done differently in in professional football even. So you mentioned things have changed a hell of a lot. What, what are yeah. some of the things that you've seen that have changed? I, th- I think there is a, there's, a, there's a recognition now, which is good because it's moving in the right direction, that just by, by allowing players, kids, to explore, try things, experiment, take risks, they can actually find solutions to quite complex problems. The problems are not just problems as in how do I kick this ball straight, but the problems are... How do I get the ball to X when Y is in between us? So it's a cognitive issues as well. And developing skills like flexibility, being able to adapt, being able to change your mind very, very quickly are really important skills that people need to develop. If you just consider for one moment, I I think generally kids are very good at this anyway. I mean, certainly when I played football when I was a kid, we used to, depending on the number of kids that turned up, would determine the size of the pitch depending on the type of players that turned up would determine the type of rules that we applied so what would example to the be? game. Well, for example, if, if one team had a, one less man, they would have a fly keeper, but you had to nominate the fly keeper, or the opposition would have to f- nominate the fly keeper. So I'll tell you a nice little story. I was with my students here. Um, when we turn up for a practical, me and my buddy 
me and my, my buddy, my, my fellow lecturer, we turn up about sort of 15 minutes before the session, set up the gate, and then we get a couple of basketballs up. And we start shooting hoops and, you know, round the back and, and doing, you know, layups and doing all sorts of stuff. Our students are still sat outside watching us messing around, okay? And I'm thinking, well, why aren't they down in the hall messing around and shooting hoops and playing crossbar challenge and, you know, until, until the session starts? I play football every Wednesday night, me, and I'm, I, I probably bring down the average age of this group by about 20 years. I mean, <laughs> the youngest one apart from me is about 62. It, it's not walking it's not football, walking good. But, it, but it's not far <laughs> off. If I tell you I'm like the Ryan Giggs, that, that'll tell you how slow everybody is, okay? But the thing that really strikes me about these guys in the 60s is they, they make the rules up depending on the number of players that turn up that particular night. It's just recreational football. And they determine the size of the goals. They determine what rules they're going to put in. They'll say, right, it's two-touch for the next five minutes. Or they'll say, Jack, you're on two-touch and you're on two-touch. And, and I'm thinking, yeah, they, they've grown up in a world where literally they would turn up with a ball. And they've grown up in a world where they've had to work out where to play. That part of the street they can't play because somebody else is playing up. That part of the football pitch is all boggy and wet. So, that, so they've had to adapt and then they've had to adapt rules and changes and all this sort of thing. And I, I look at these guys in the 60s, 50s and 60s, and I think, yeah, you, you have these skills to be able to adapt and change the rules of the game to fit in with what you need tonight. We can't make the pitch too big. In the 60s, they can't, they can't go up and down without sure, lots yeah. of heart attacks, you know. In fact, the other week, they were saying, should we, should we invest in a defib around here? Do you know what I mean? So, but it, it did strike me that, you know, where have they learnt those skills from? Well, they've learnt those skills through having a ball, find some ground, find a piece of turf, you know, and then adapting the game to fit in with their needs. And I do wonder, and this sort of brings me on to where I want to go with this sort of chat, where is the space for kids to have that opportunity outside of the control of adults to develop those skills, to invest in their own time, agree rules, disagree rules, fall out with each other, renegotiate, decide how the teams are split up and organised without having adults organise and structure it for them. I, I do want, wonder about that. And in my role as, as so I, I work for the FA in the mentoring role, as, as I'm sure you're aware, I see a lot of kids coming to football training and I, I look at these kids and, and, and if I've been at school all day, told what to do, where to go, how to behave, I'm being shepherded around, around a school that has probably got bells ringing away when I'm allowed to have me lunch and I've got to put my hand up and go for a wee and all this sort of stuff. And then I come to football training and what happens? Somebody else is telling me what to go, where to go, how to behave. So somebody else is now pecking my head on top of what I've had all day. And I do then begin to wonder, well, where is the space for them? Because I play old man's football on Wednesday night and I would be pretty hacked off if somebody kept stopping me and telling me where to go, where to run, how to do it. I just want to play. I just want to run around and play. I don't want anybody telling me what to do, where to go. I just want to play and score great goals. I, 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 my football's a bit like my golf, you know. I, I play 18 holes of golf and I hit four drives 
and the next Tiger Woods. Yeah. The rest you can forget about. And, but my football's the same. If I've done three great passes, one great run, and nearly scored, or even scored, you know what? I'm happy for a week until the next Wednesday. I wonder where that space is for kids. Which brings me on to my next point. Well, before you go on to that, you've just reminded me of something that I experienced recently, which was, it was half term, October half term. Yeah. And normally the club that I coach at, we, we try and get every team within the club training on the same facility, on, on one sand-based Astro, uh, over the same Wednesday night so between 5 o'clock and 10 o'clock at night nigh on every team in the club trains there and, and there are better facilities yeah. in the area but the reason why we wanted to do it was to have that cross-pollination of ideas and yes. bring it more of as a, as a club rather than a collection of teams who wear the same kit and over half term I was working with the, the 14s that I coach and we were the only team that night on the AstroTurf and they hadn't obviously been at school that day and, and the lads turned up and it was the most relaxed that I'd ever I could remember seeing them for a long time right. and the amount of quality that we got out of that evening I don't but I don't I wouldn't pin it down to one single thing but I, I'm not sure how much not being at school that day had an impact they were really relaxed when they turned up and, and really keen and eager and ready to learn. And the, the other thing was that it was a quiet environment. Normally it's absolute chaos and bedlam with all, you know, about another five different sessions going on. Balls pinging around everywhere. But we, we had that, that luxury that evening of, of having a bit of peace and quiet. And we got so much good work done that evening. I wonder how much those factors contributed, if at all. Well, I, I do. I am beginning to question... Us as adults, you've invested a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of effort as level one coaches and getting the qualification. And it's a, it's an FVA requirement that people have qualifications and the CRB checks and all that, which, which is the right way to go. But are we then just assuming that all kids want to be developed? Are we assuming that they're coming down because they want to improve? Yeah. You remind me of Pete Sturgis who's been on the podcast previously I remember him saying to it it might have been when we were on some training with him a few years ago but he said he'd never experienced a young player who came up to him and said Pete I really want you to formally coach me tonight <laughs> no it's <laughs> just with me. and, and I, you know I use this example to my students and I'm saying like I think if anybody tried to teach me how to ski I'll pack in skiing because the best thing about skiing for me is the laugh I like, the, I like, I like the risk <laughs> I like the fun I like people laughing at me I like learning by falling down loads because I think I'm pretty safe I'm not if, if I went skiing I told my wife I said she wants to go skiing I said yeah but I'm not joining some ski school I just want to go down the thing and have a laugh and I, when I was in my 20s that's what me and some mates do we ended up on bin liners in the end just lashing down yeah. some some piste and and that, and that, I suppose, goes right back to what you were saying about Bobby Robson, mm. who, as a Newcastle fan, uh, course, my yeah. favourite ever manager. So glad that you, you mentioned him there. Um, what, what an inspiration to me as a, as a coach. But you mentioned about the quality that you felt yeah. that he brought was that understanding or the connection. Yeah. And I think you said the same about the, the, the table tennis coach, yeah. that having that ability to know and understand the person that you're coaching yeah, absolutely and why they're there why they're there so 
And the reason why I say that is you, you mentioned your motives for skiing about 10, 11 years ago, I got introduced to snowboarding. Right. And it was the most painful week of my life. <laughs> and it was also one of the, the best weeks I'd ever had in my life. I'd never experienced a, a learning process like it. I was working in a, a high school, my old high school as a education support officer. And I, I had no interest in ever going up the mountains or going on a ski trip. I'd never been on one before, but the, the PE department asked me, would I come to make up the ratios? Yeah, no problem. They said, well, you've got a week's worth of lessons, six hours a day, paid for. Do you want to ski or snowboard? I, was, I, I don't know, I'm not bothered. And they said, well, if you ski, you'll be in a group with 12 of the, the students, but right. if you snowboard, it'll pretty much be one-to-one. -one. Right. So, well, I'll do that then. And uh, my instructor, Robbie Marzuki, if he's listening out there, I'd love <laughs> to connect with him because I owe that guy so much gratitude. It was incredible. And he, um, I think after a couple of hours, I realized that, well, A, that this was gonna be the most painful week of my life, but B, that I could feel the, the process of improvement, rapid improvement. I mean, he's such a good teacher. Uh, one of the first things he taught me to do was how to fall, how to right, crash, yeah. which was a really important lesson yeah, then. Yeah, and uh, and I got absolutely hooked on improving and getting better. So, and I still go, as often as I can every winter to this day and I, I am at that point where you know when I go on on the mountain I am trying to most of the time push myself to the absolute limit and almost scare myself because if yeah. I'm not at that edge I don't feel like I'm learning yeah but so we, we if, if if a coach was working with us two on the mountains for example without understanding yeah. why we're there and what yeah, we want it, it could make some real assumptions that yeah. maybe weren't accurate you, you want to develop your snowboard skills yeah. and really push it I just want to have a laugh yeah. I want to watch you yeah. I want to laugh and go and kill yourself yeah. and, and not appreciating that we sometimes assume and um, I'm, I'm noticing my own coaching now and I do not as much coaching as I'd like I often now set up two pitches I set up a coaching pitch and I set up a recreational pitch where people can just go and play. And the kids drift. If we've got lots of kids, they drift in between the two. How do you get that message across to the to the kids then? I, I literally like that. I'm yeah. saying, you know, people who just want a game tonight, unsupervised, it's over there. All right. People who want to work on whatever we work on tonight, defending or playing forward, you come over here. And and so in a typical group, how many might well, in that group in, and interestingly, what, who goes now, now this is the best bit. Interestingly, initially, a lot of the kids go to the just recreational. And I don't take offence. It's really important that you don't take offence. You know, you say, that's for you. But um, I have noticed when they have more choice about coming to your group and your coaching, more and more of them gravitate towards your session. So when you say more choice, as in the content? Recreation or the content. Yeah. Yeah. So, so giving them the choice of, yeah, I want to work on, on defending tonight because that's what the topic is. I'm going to go with defending. But tonight, I just want to have a game of football. And, and, and you get, in the group, there's about 18 kids. So we usually get, at worst, 4v4 on the recreational competitive, which is not a bad, yeah. bad experience for them. But giving them choices, and I'm going to talk to you about that later, is a real powerful tool to empowering young people. Like everything, there's a theory behind the self-determination theory. But giving them that power, that real power, 
gives them that autonomy to make choices for themselves about the way they want to play football. And that's, that, that, to me, is more important than saying we give students or players or participants, um, you know, student-centred or player-centred by asking them questions. Well, it's not quite player-centred. It is because you've asked the question. You've dictated what the questions are. <laughs> I mean, how, how's that player-centred? And you're expecting... Resp- that's not quite player-centred. And I'll, I'll talk about that later. So what sort of age group have you tried that? The, the uh, these, these are about 12, yeah. 12, 13. You know, that age when they're starting to get a bit more independent, yeah. a bit the, the, they've got their own voice and they want to demonstrate that own voice. And Is it always the same players on each pitch? No, no, no. no. And, and which brings me on to my second point, is I've also seen some players, and it's what led me towards this conclusion, that, I'll be honest with you, are rude. And they are disrespectful and not very nice kids with the coaches. And these coaches had given up the time, they've often paid to do the National Governing Body Level 1, um, they've come straight from work, they're harangued by the players, they're harangued by parents, and then some of these kids, quite brutally, quite rude with them. We're not, I'm not doing that, it's rubbish, I'm not doing this, it's, it's rubbish, and all this sort of thing. And, and I'll be mortified if my children behave like that to an adult. You know, they, they don't like maths, but I would not expect them to be rude to the maths teacher at school or anybody else for that, that matter, particularly if they're trying to help them. That's what these coaches, in the main, they might be misguided, I accept that, but in the main are, are, are trying their very best to, to, to allow these kids to play and develop, and they want to improve them. Absolutely. And, and some of these kids that... To, to be absolutely honest with you, quite rude and, and not respectful, and you know, and, and that bothered me a little bit. How, how do I deal with that? So how, how do we deal with that then? Well, that's where I take you back to my previous point. Is well, if 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 all day, Jack, you've had your head pecked by a teacher where to go, how to behave, and what you've got to learn, and this is what you're going to learn. And I'm going to ask you lots of questions. Maybe I'll be a bit rude. <laughs> Maybe. I would go, oh, you know what, I can't be bothered with this anymore. Just leave me alone. And that's where I'm concerned that we, there isn't that space for those kids anymore to just get on with it. So what I'm saying, there's a double-edged sword here, isn't there? On one hand, we're trying to support and develop these plays to inform practices, and, and the FA, God bless them, have got so many resources and support mechanisms in place to make coaches better to make the experience better for kids, which is exactly the right thing to do. But at the same time, maybe there is so much um, investment in the support structures to make coaches better that we forgot a really, really simple aspect about sport or playing sport is that play is fun, it's spontaneous, it's independent. And we've sort of nearly all the condition that we've over-commodified it, to use a sociological term, to such a point where we are nearly obsessed with controlling all the opportunities to play. Mm. Whether that's in the types of practices we do, or who delivers them, uh, what level you've got to be. So this huge investment in time, money, infrastructures is taken away and taken our eye off the, the more central point, is that children play 
because they can and it's fun it's spontaneous they make it up as they go along that's what playing is you know and, and we've nearly overconditioned the the systems and we've taken our eye off that ball yeah I remember John Allpress who's a former colleague of ours used to say that you know underst- again understanding the context in which you work but when you're working with grassroots young developing players there's one of the objectives of the coach is to leave a light footprint. Yeah. So, you know, don't don't make it all about what we want. Yeah. Actually, listen to them and, and, and try and help them get to where they want to be. I think there's got to be a reason now, I've come to the conclusion more and more, there's got to be a blooming good reason for you to, to for you to intervene in, a, in kids playing. There's got to be a really good reason why you have an intervention really good reason and that's not to say that adults and, and coaches can't improve performance and can't develop performance and they can't make the environment more fun but it, it's got to be tempered against you know why are the kids there and, and some of the kids just want a bit of independence and if you think about you know the, the thing I get as a mentor back all the time is is about you know 12, 13, 14 you know the, the kids are starting to get a bit cheeky well, yeah, the 12, 13, 14, they want that little bit of independence. They want that little bit of pushing back and asking the why question. And that, that sometimes can be an awkward answer. What, why are we doing this? Can we not just have a game? Hmm. You know, and yeah, and I think it sometimes puts coaches, particularly inexperienced coaches, in, in difficult positions because our expectations of them as a coach, the expectations of the parents as coaches that they coach. I mean, I, I left a football club because parents complained I, was, I wasn't shouting enough on the sideline. I, I mean, that, that's no exaggeration, you know. So in your role as a mentor then, how are you helping the coaches under your guidance, your mentees, how are you helping them to solve these problems? The, right. I'm, I'm pleased you use the word problem because as your previous podcast interviewees have articulated really well, you know, people like Mark Partington and, and Andy Kale. Coaching is, is, is incredibly complex and sophisticated process. It would be lovely to have nice, simple, clear answers to all the problems that are presented to you on a Thursday night in Wigan somewhere. But the reality of it, it, it it's not, there isn't one easy solution to all the problems. So my, the research that I've been doing, which is really following on from, from a lot of the work that's already being carried out, and some of it by, by Mark Parkinson, when they've, they've identified and, and tried to analyse what, what are effective coaches, what do they look like, what, what are the characteristics, is I'm really interested in, well, how, how did these coaches become those expert coaches, those coaches who can make lots of decisions with limited information and sometimes those decisions are different from the week before, even with the same group. So, so what leads them to develop expertise, if you like, might like? And, and so I've, I've, drew, I've drawn on, on you know, a lot of literature, particularly around um, expertise, development expertise, Christine Nash, Dave Collins, people like that, who, who talk about cognitive skills, thinking skills, thinking through problems, you know, and you you probably heard this analogy, you know, cooks and chefs analogies. Mm. You know, what a, I'm, I'm a cook. You know, I, I put stuff in ovens and I follow recipes really closely. 
and if things start going belly up, I'm, I'm struggling because I haven't built up the expertise to really understand what is going on within the cooking regime. The chefs there, they can smell it, they can taste it, they can see it, and they can make judgments based on those uh, elements which might not be quite fitting together at this. And I would say coaches do the same, the expert coaches are the same. They take their information from a whole range of sources and make fine decisions, and sometimes decisions that are perceptual in nature. Um, give you a clear example. You know, a number of times I go to mentees and I say, oh, what are you working on tonight? Oh, we're working on passing. Why, why, why are you working on passing tonight? He says, oh, at the weekend we couldn't pass. Our team, they couldn't pass. They couldn't pass from here to be hopeless. So for the next hour, the kids are passing the ball from one cone to another, and that's it. But perceptually, it might be about the support play, about angles and distance, when to pass, where to pass, you know, where are the receiving plays in relation to the ball in relation to defenders. So it's those broader, most perceptual cognitive skills that the players need to develop. But the coach's perspective is they couldn't pass. So effective coaches can see, can take meaning from these observations and deeper meaning. So, so it's very much, as has been articulated, coaching is, is in effect a sophisticated, sometimes dynamic, problem-solving skill. The type of coaches, or the type of skill, I should say, that is required to develop those sort of cognitive skills is, is what I would call a sophisticated epistemology. You're going to have to explain that one. <laughs> epistemology is simply, it's, it's a branch of philosophy. It relates to our view of how we accrue knowledge. How do we gain knowledge? Let, let me give you two examples and it'll become clear, okay? Many of my students come in as first year here and the mums have bought them, a, mum and dads have bought them a really nice, white, gleaming writing pad with a, with a bunch of pens, <laughs> different coloured pens and different coloured markers. I can put one slide on there and that'll be copied straight down. And their understanding of learning is very much rooted in, I'm in a university, I'm sitting in the classroom, I've got my white, beautiful white uh, uh, writing pad here. There's some nice PowerPoint slides over there. All I need to do is copy what, what's on there. I have to listen intently to the lecturer or the teacher when I'm out at school. And if I reproduce that information, because if it's up there and it's being delivered by a lecturer, a senior lecturer, no less, it must be right. It's absolutely right. So it's, you know, there's no argument. And, and what we had delivered, a, a, a fact, it's absolute. What, what am I paying £9,000 for if I'm not going to learn from Okay? So that's, that's at one end of what, how people think they accrue knowledge. And has that come from the school system that they've come uh, through? Uh, yeah, Is that, a, that's a part a of the socialisation. That's a yeah. whole other conversation. We'll save that one. So it's a socialisation process, in effect. And, and to a certain extent, I think it's getting worse. You know, My daughter's in year 10, and all she does is revise and copy stuff down. And when she doesn't understand stuff, she gets upset. But the teachers say, don't worry about understanding it, just copy it down. Yeah. So that's at one end of the epistemological uh, continuum, if you like. That's, we might refer to that as naive epistemology. Now, the other end of the epistemological continuum, you'll get, you'll get the, the student or the person who thinks, um, right, I can accrue my knowledge from discussion, from disagreeing from asking questions, from experiencing things. 
from not, not just in the classroom, but apply my experiences in real world context. I can, I can listen to Cliff or Jack Walton, but I, I'm gonna challenge them because I'm not so sure about that. And they can develop new knowledge and ideas rooted in constructivism the idea that you know what I can build my own understanding of this knowledge so that's more of a sophisticated approach to learning okay mm. so you just don't accept everything that's just laid out in front of you there it's that opportunity to, to debate consider think about um, question and come to conclusions and I can see the link now between that and that the analogy used before which is around the cooks and the chefs mm. and I, I think it might have been was it Andy Abrahams and Gareth Morgan yeah I, I read something about that and one of the things that struck me when I read that and it's a, that's an analogy I've been using for a few years now when when working with coaches yeah. to try and where we can shift them towards that chef end of the spectrum absolutely is the ability to so the chef he or she may have that or will have that ability to know what to do when things start to go wrong so i've got to do the starter for christmas dinner this year okay and i am um, <laughs> <laughs> that's not a trip down to iceland is it it could be, <laughs> it could be but i can guarantee you now that i will be pulling off a recipe from the internet and hopefully it goes to plan but if something starts to go wrong i don't necessarily have yeah. the skills the cookery skills to back back it up and to, to fix the problem that, that's in effect expertise yeah and you know just and 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 i would argue that in order to develop those sophisticated coaches who can manage really complex problems you need a sophisticated epistemology so my argument with coach education and coach development is to move to more more of a cognitively based so they can see problems first of all they can recognize them they can see all the greys you know all the different types of solutions that and then come up with a best fit solution to this particular issue. Because it's very rare, what I've seen in coaching, that you will get absolute black and white answers. You might say on the extremes, don't play football on the M6. <laughs> you know what I mean? You go, well, yeah, yeah. I'll give you that. But, but by and large... When there's cars on it. You, when there's cars on it, particularly if there wasn't cars on it, yeah. you know what? You might consider that. So, and, 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 and to me... The issue isn't content anymore because we've got access to content. There's so much content out there. The key is being able to filter out what's appropriate and what's inappropriate for the group that I'm working with. And, and you know, I know I tell you this story all the time, but to provide an example, uh, I remember going down to the coaching conference and Gareth Southgate delivering a coaching session, which was fabulous, fabulous. Um, but let, let's, let's put it in context here. This is a, an ex-England international ex-Premier League manager, now at the time England under 21 manager, so not without experience, not without confidence, not without skills, delivering a session to West Bromwich Albion under 18s, elite play. players, yeah. um, in some of the best facilities in the world, air condition, 3G pitch. Although it was freezing in there. Was it freezing that day? Yeah, that day, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and, and he delivered this fantastic session, it was brilliant. And I could see all the coaches scribbling furiously down on, on, on the sheet of paper. And yeah, I mean, I, I learned a lot, it was great to watch and all this. But the important thing that they'd missed, of course, was how do I 
use that learning experience and adapt it to my environment, to the type of kids that I work with. What things can I take out of it to make it appropriate for my level of experience, my conditions, my environment that I coach in? So looking at the process rather than the recipe ingredients? Yes, partly, but, but again, just jumping back a step, is those coaches, through their formal coach education, I would argue, we've got to encourage them to be far more critical. I don't mean criticise, critical in their evaluation of what they see. So why is Gareth Southgate doing what he's doing? Why, why could he do something different? If I did that practice, how would I have to adapt it for my under eights? Would I have to make the pitch smaller, the ball smaller? Would I need to put an extra rule in there? Would they actually get anything out of that practice? So, so having those critical thinking skills, I would argue, are actually far more important than giving them lots of drills and practices. Because they're, they're, they're out anywhere. there. Yeah, yeah they're out there. They're like that. That's the least, least of your problems. And if there's one thing that I've learned from talking to brilliant people like yourself on, on this podcast, it's, it's how to ask better questions. Mm. And I'm still learning that yeah. as, I, as I go, really. And you, you reeled off a load of questions there that a coach may have been asking themselves while mm. watching Gareth's session on the yeah. Dome with West Brom. How do we teach that? I think um, in, in, in one of the papers I'm putting together now, I think um, recognising the art of discussion, the opportunity to challenge, even with your peers, is a really, really helpful way to um, practice the skills of critical insight and critical thinking. For example, if you see a practice and you scribble it down, have a chat with peer coaches. That could be in the car coming back from somewhere. That could be in the pub. That could be anywhere. And try and understand how you could apply that. And it's a bit like going to the gym, isn't it? You can watch somebody else do a, a training regime and oh, they look big and strong. Mm. They look powerful. But they, they might, you know, have been going for the last three years. They might be under the supervision of a personal trainer. So just because you... You, you've seen somebody do that and they look big and strong and powerful doesn't mean to say you'll become big and strong and powerful if you just do those mm. and that's where you might need a bit of help a little bit of discussion a bit of chat and that's where I think the mentoring programme is quite helpful because I'd like to think that it's an opportunity to discuss things to consider things to evaluate things you know wherever the practices are um, rather than necessarily mentors giving you lots and lots of practices because if that's what mentoring is, and that's what, if that's what coach education is, then the FA can save them a whole load of money and just give every, everybody a copy of the future game. But it, it can't be about that. So encouraging people to discuss, evaluate. I think Hive has been a, a decent platform, because I noticed Pete Sturgis is on it regularly. I, I think that's a great opportunity for people to ask questions. I think the coach education courses have got to work a little bit harder in or the coach educators, I should say, rather than the courses, got to work a little bit harder and encouraging candidates to be a lot more critical in nature and encourage them to ask the question, why? I think there's still an element, and it's partly socialisation element, of on a coach education course, we're going to show you what to do, 
we're going to do a load of demonstrations for you and then off you go so clearly the suggestion is copy that and I'm not saying don't provide demonstration activities but they're there for the candidate to become critical of that and when I say critical I don't mean criticise I mean why are you doing that Jack could you have done this instead you know that that's what it should be there mm. for not not have a look at us and if you do this then you've got a really good chance of passing your level whatever it is yeah. and what, that's one thing that I've I've noticed that a lot of our coach educators have been doing really well in recent years is rather than okay we're going to do this drill or this game or this practice X uh, it's actually okay tell the story of it mm. so um, I was working with my under 10s and we've been helping them to learn X, Y or Z whatever that may be and this is a practice within a, a you know a six week block of learning that we worked on on uh, let's say pressing from the front for yes. example and actually telling the story and giving some some context to the reasons why they put that practice on rather than here's a practice have that yeah and telling that story is I, I hope some way goes to bridging those those gaps yeah. and I think in all the time I've been on coach education course and not just football ones I've never had this question why are you doing what you're doing mm. because if, if you rock up to watch somebody coach, and, and I do as a mentor, and I have a really quite fixed idea of what good coaching is, if that is what I see doesn't quite fit in to my mental model of good coaching, there's a pretty good chance that person might fail if it's, if it's an assessment. Now, unfortunately, moving away from that, because now it's become a more formative assessment, so I know the UFAB is running like that, which is better because now you provide feedback to... But still the critical question should be, just tell me what has led you to deliver that type of practice. What makes you think it will work and what do you think the outcomes will be for the kids and will that outcome be the same for all the kids? Yeah. And where would you see that practice taking the kids so you can move it on? Those are sort of questions. So what you're doing is you're developing the candidate's ability to think through why they're doing what they're doing and that is dependent on what they did before but also have that perceptive knowledge and think well where am I actually where does this fit in in the longer term and in order to do that which is a, quite a sophisticated what I would call it epistemology I think as coach educators we have to target people's epistemology and go you can learn from so many different sources you can learn by questioning and challenging you can learn by reading listening looking experiencing and you can draw your own conclusions and ideas and sometimes those ideas and conclusions might be slightly different not better or worse different from the next person's but that's all right as long as you can justify and you can rationalize what is going on and this is the best bit you can change your mind yeah yeah you can you can you know, you can go, well, three months ago or two years ago, I thought this. But now as a consequence of what I've read, what I've seen, I've actually changed my mind a little bit. And that's one of the I suppose, concerns that I've had is that we're in this 
era now, like you say, the social media world and it's um, it's very easy to trawl back through, for example, somebody's Twitter timeline and pull mm. up an opinion that they stated publicly five years ago. Yeah. And I, I worry that people are... It, that might lead people to be rooted and cemented to well, their ideas. It's a weakness, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you know, changing your mind. It, yeah, it, change your mind. And, and, and you, of course, the other thing that's seen as a weakness is if that you take considered time to come to an opinion. You know, football, you need to make decisions like that. You know, well, sometimes. But isn't yeah. it a strength then? I, if I you're would honest say enough. it's a strength, yeah. I mean, sometimes I understand you have to make quick decisions, but there's no reason why you can't reflect back. And I don't think it's it's often helped. And, and again, I'm not apportioning blame, but how many times have I watched Match of the Day and one of the pundits will present an aspect of defending or an aspect of forward play as black and white, as an absolute? And people sit there and go, well, he's played 500 games in the Premier League, he scored X amount of goals, he must be right. And they take that as a gospel and then they apply the same principles to their under eights. And you, well, if, if such and such a body on the telly on Match of the Year said it, it it's got to be right. It, it has to be. And we've got to try and move people, for me, you've got to move people away from that way of thinking, like a naive epistemology, to be a more sophisticated epistemology. And like, well, hang on a is that appropriate? What can I draw from that? And that's not to say ex-professionals and it's got a huge amount to, to, add, to contribute. Just the same as academics have got a huge amount to contribute. And experienced practitioners of grassroots have got a huge amount. But we've always got to be critical and say, well, where does it fit in with my understanding, with the group I'm working with in, in that environment? And, that, and that's one of the reasons why I, I put in those regular questions that we've been asking to All right. a lot of the guests. So that would be a good time to, to ask you, what have you changed your mind about in your own coaching? Um... Well, if I start with that, see, see red and heard. Yeah, sure. Yeah. If I can just follow that sort of process. Um, I've, I've been reading more and more stuff, not as much as I would like, but uh, this concept of heutagogy, yeah, pedagogy, andragogy, and heutagogy. And heutagogy is well, very much... You have to go through, all, well, through, yeah. go through all three of them for us, yeah. Well, uh, pedagogy is learning, uh, children's learning. Yep. Uh, um where, where I'm up to. Andragogy is about adults, how, how we create environments for adults to learn. And hoitagogy is this concept of self-determined learning. And, and there, there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of research and literature, but, but it's very much focused in and around the idea that we can help guide learners to what they need and what they think they want to develop so, so this idea of self-determined learning this is what I want to do tonight this is how I'm going to do it so a little can bit you like, help me was that a bit like when how you learned to play table tennis yeah yeah, yeah. And, and as I say I haven't read a lot but, but the thing that really intrigues me more and more is creating environments where students in this place the university plays on a football pitch can have more and more autonomy about how that coaching session goes. So, they ha so we give them more and more space to learn. And some kids would just want to get on with it, like me and my skiing. I just want to get on with it. 
I'm not bothered about learning the techniques. Just let me get on with it. And when I do want to learn the techniques, if I get to a point where I actually want to get better, I'll come and find you as long as I know where you are. So, so that is stuff that I'm reading and I'm beginning to move towards where is this, as I said right at the beginning of this podcast, where is the space for people, kids particularly, just to have their own space to learn? And, and explore things and try things and the scary thing is because I see it with my daughters the only place that I can see them doing that is potentially in, on, on the net online and that that has some issues some some, mm. some you know potential problems and issues and if that's the only space where they can explore find out stuff I'm, I'm not I'm not sure if I'm entirely comfortable with that so, so that so, so this idea of self-determined learning and the idea of giving independence and ownership, real ownership, you know, not, not asking them questions that I've set up, because that, you know, that to me is not really self-determined. So, so that's how I'm, so I'm beginning to sort of change my mind about my role as a coach, because I think, I think my role as a coach is, and I've seen the role of coaches is creating some problems, because I think some kids are getting getting hacked off at times and from time to time they get I mean sometimes rude even I said that earlier didn't yeah, I yeah and I'm just wondering well maybe I would be rude if somebody's pecking my head at night yeah. I've had an idea of, of teachers pecking my head all day and I'm sure teachers will be up in arms now saying we're actually teaching them I know you are you're working really hard I know you are and and finally that sort of that best investment uh, and that was an interesting one um I would always say education, education, education. You know, that, you know, I've been really, I'm working in an educational establishment. I'm fully supported with my own personal development, whether that's, you know, doing on, on short CPD courses or, or finishing off PhDs and stuff like that. But I would say to everyone, really, surround yourself with as many types of people who've got various experiences and question. <laughs> And always question them and ask them. Of course, you've, you've got to pick your victims because some, sometimes people can get quite defensive if you are questioning what they're doing because it, it, it could be seen as a threat. But ask the why question. And, and you might come across really fabulous coaches, really experienced coaches like yourself, Jack. But equally, I know any coach who came up to you and asked you, why are you doing that, Jack? You wouldn't see it as a threat. You no. would see it as very much an opportunity for you first of all to justify what you're doing mm -hmm. but also to help somebody understand what you're doing yeah personally I would see it in a, a strength in the, in the person asking the question mm. and that network that you mentioned I suppose is, is so important and mm. being able to build build that network and having the Absolutely. skills in order to do that and you, you mentioned about you know your, your daughter it sounds like the network is literally built yeah. on the net yeah we were talking beforehand how refreshing it's been to just have these conversations with no distractions and, and yeah. sit down. And how often do do people actually do that in, I, I don't, in today's I don't world? I don't know. And uh, but I think asking those questions is key. And don't take it as a given because you know Cliff Olson, senior lecturer at UCLan, or Jack Walton, full time official from the FA. What they say is absolute black and white. Absolutely not. It, it's part of a puzzle, a bigger puzzle, which you have to interpret and, and make sense of y yourself. And, and again, 
going back to my daughters, they they wouldn't dare, which I think it's a shame, and, and they often don't challenge the teacher about stuff. Why are you doing that? Or disagree with the teacher? Because in our world, teachers know everything, don't they? The number of times, Jack, I get asked to join quiz teams because I'm a lecturer in sports studies, and if I don't know who came second in the 1932 derby... How dare you? I, I thought you were a lecturer in sport. How can you not know who won the 1932 derby and who came second and who roared them? Because people's view of knowledge and understanding and, you know, people who are well-educated, they know loads of stuff, and that's reinforced by University Challenge, Mastermind, who wants to be a millionaire? They must be dead clever because they know loads of stuff. Well, all right, they know loads of stuff, but... It's this critical engagement, thinking through issues and problems. And that's a good point that I want to rewind on. So you mentioned that you're on your UA for B at the moment yeah. as a learner. How has the project of work that you've been tasked with doing, mm. how do you see that aligning with those, those skills that make up that coaching expertise, if right. at all? That's a really good question. And I'll be really interested to see what the feedback is from that project because I think the project above all else provides candidates the opportunity to see coaching from their world and their perspective and I think that's really really important so for example my project a significant part has has been because the coach the the club that I coach at is a club called Mill Hill and it's it, Mill Hill's based in, in sort of quite a disadvantaged area of Blackburn. And football to those kids, and, and in fact those families, and many of the coaches, is a real opportunity to accrue uh, status and prestige and and show how good they are. Because some of these kids, you know, probably aren't doing great at school. So a lot of that project has been rooted around the socio demographics of Mill Hill. It's it's a mainly white working class area you know um, so seeing how they see football and how important football is to them from that from that part of the community and they're very proud of, of coming from Mill Hill in fact, in fact I think they have a they have a like under the logo they say that they have a strap line that says pride loyalty and passion on the badge on the badge pride loyalty and passion and, and, and they try and live that, the committee and the coaches try and live that, pride, loyalty and passion. So you've got to be proud where you're from, very important. Loyalty to your team, you never, you never give up. And passion, you're enthusiastic in everything you do. So, so that, to me, as a coach, becomes a really important part of how I coach and the values that the kids and the parents and, and, and the coaches put by playing football for Mill Hill you always show loyalty you, you're always proud to come from the, all the kids and all the players and all the coaches are fully kitted up and they wear the badge with, with you know, honour and integrity so part of my um, project in the UFAB has been recognising that for me to be an effective coach in that environment I have got to buy into those values and how do they look in practice how would passion look in practice? For Enthusiasm. Yeah. You know, uh, loyalty. I mean, all the kids turn up every every week. You never let your team down. If, if you can't make a football match, you ring up. It's just good practice, good manners, you know. Um, you, you don't let, you, you know, I, I come from a strong working class area and you never let your mates down. 
ne- you know, you go to Newcastle matches, you know, Newcastle players have got to work for the badge. They, they never let the town down. You know, it's the same in Mill Hill. It's about that loyalty to your team, passion, enthusiasm. You never give up, you know, and you're proud of where you're from. You don't hide away and say, oh, I'm from Mill Hill. No, I'm proud to come from Mill Hill. And for me, as a coach, recognising those qualities, those values, they're rooted in, in the demographics of that part of Blackburn is a really important part of my coaching and the way I deliver it. And, the ex- and, and those kids have been socialised in, in many ways through that. So have you had to adapt your own style of coaching? Not then? really, oh. because... Uh, because those, the reason probably why, because it was a team that I mentored, but the reason why I've sort of gravitated towards that, that club and that team, because I, I identify with those values, because I come from a sort of white working class area in the northeast, you know, so I, so it was very easy for me to identify with those qualities, so I, I didn't need to adapt. But, but my point was in putting together the project, the assessors, I, I, I wanted to make the point that yeah, I can put. 12 sessions together, you know, whole part whole, I'll do all that technical stuff, but without me understanding the context I'm working in, those are just simply 12 sessions, <laughs> you know, to, without understanding why I'm doing what I'm doing, and that's the context I'm working in, it, it doesn't make, it's just 12 sessions that, that you could have got off the internet, but I'm doing these sessions because it fits in with the sort of pride, loyalty and passion. And a lot of my coaching is about kids trying 100% in the practices. Kids never let, letting each other down. You know, if you can't make the training, you ring up the manager, I don't manage the team, I just coach the team. You know, I can't make it tonight, Martin, or I can't make it, you know, I can't make the game, just loyalty. And, and you're proud, you, you turn up and your kid. Your kid looks, the, you know, and they all turn up in the training kit. So all those sort of things all, all hang together to make an effective coaching session by an effective coach. And that's something that we're increasingly asking more and more coaches to do now that, that come on our courses is, is thinking about who you are, what, what is, mm. what's your values. Yeah, and, and there's, there's a section in there about my values. Yeah. And it, I'll show you sometime, I'm happy to share it with you. But I've, I've I mean, it's partly I'm, I'm in a fortunate position that I understand these concepts in, in some detail. Mm. So I've articulated what, what my philosophy is as a, as a man if you like a uh, middle aged man and how, how those are translated into my behaviours as a coach and what my expectations are for myself and the players and the parents the, these, are the, these are the lines that you put in you know and, and that's sort of partly negotiated because there's an element negotiate with the club because they've got these quite sort of strong Pride, loyalty, and passion, mm. but also the players as well. These are our expectations, and people buy into that. If you don't mind, if I can be a little bit nosy. Give us a flavour as to what the last session that you did with with the to set the scene for us, and, and if it you can tell actually, us, talk us through it. Yeah, it was. In fact, I'm doing another one tonight. It was actually a part of my UEFAB a phase of play, and we were working on defending in wide areas. And so you set the you set the teams up. There's one goalkeeper. You're playing against one goal. So you got the goalkeeper. You got uh, a back four with two central holding midfield players. How many players have you got? We're about on um, this particular night. I had 
13 or 14. I'm guessing you, did you knew then how many players you were going to have how yeah. long before the session? Yeah. Uh, well, no, sometimes it's 17, 18 turn up. Yeah. And, and, well, so how do you plan I better go, go back a step, really. Okay. Because as I said, the first 20 minutes or so for this particular session, um, I'll do one on one defending, or the kids who don't want to do defending, they go and play the rec football. Yep. Just 2v2. As it happened, this particular night, 13, 14 turned up, and as, as we're doing a little 1v1 defending, 2v2 defending, one or two more turn-ups. So it was about 11 turned up initially and then about another two or three turn-ups. So the first 20 minutes, they're either playing rec football or I'm doing a coaching session. And how much space have you got? Half a pitch. 3G or...? Um, no, it's, it's the, the cheap raster turf. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's okay. not, not the posh stuff. Um, so we're doing 1v1 defending, 2v2 defending. Um, nobody particularly, this particular night didn't want to do any rec football, which is fine. So, so we did a bit of that for about 20 minutes. And then I put them in the phase of play. So they were having to apply the 1v1 defending into defending in wide areas, so particularly full backs. But then I also worked a little bit more strategically with the centre backs, what they do, and the centre midfield players, yeah. what they do. And as much as, much as you can, um, you allow the the game to flow and, and I think you used the, the word natural breaks ball goes out of play I might just go over and have a chat with the, with the full backs and, and the centre backs and, and try and make it as much of a game as possible they have, if the defenders get the ball they have a target to come out and play out towards you know, so, so there's some reward for them for getting the ball yeah. and we do that for about 20-25 minutes and then uh, and then I said right we'll, we'll have a sort of regular game if you like which, which, which we do and we, we finish with a regular game or Depending on what they want to do, we might sometimes really enjoy those phases of play because they're, they're quite realistic mm. to the real game. So, so as much as I can within the constraints of doing a UEFA B, because I, I video recorded it as well. Oh, great. You see, so within the constraints of doing a UEFA B, that's the sort of thing I, I deliver. Yeah, and and how much of a gap is there between? when you're planning and what you've got in your head and that you might want from the session and then bear in mind yeah. exactly what, you know, what you've said before about what the kids turn up with and what their expectations are to actually what happens in reality what um, that, that, that you know that you know when we're talking about epistemology that's that skill of being able to adapt very quickly so if if only nine turned up let's suppose I don't know Rovers were playing at home yeah. a lot of them are Blackburn Rovers mm. fan I'd have you know that what I had planned to do would probably go out the window. Mm. And, and I mean, I remember that actually happened a few weeks ago. Uh, Blackman Rovers were playing at home. We had seven. You know, you get a sense the kids want to play a game they were keen, and they didn't want to do something. You know, when you've got seven, it can be quite intensive. So, you know, what do you think? So I said, oh, we'd like to play them. So it was another group on the other. So we said, you know, do you want to, do you want a game? And they were, I think, they were a year younger, so we just halved the team. So. Yeah. I give them half my players they half yeah. of their players so so the attackers were playing the same age group defenders in the other way oh, I see yeah. so it was quite mixed up mixed game we, we put a put a couple of conditions in the game you know um, we asked you know do you want to have conditions yeah we'll have condition I forgot what the conditions were now but they had some conditions oh that was it we, we were putting we were playing there if, if you score a goal with a one-touch finish, you get two points. Okay. If you score with a header, you get four points. If you get and they, they'd come up with that, hadn't yeah, they? The, the yeah, sort of stuff like that. And uh, and you'd make suggestions. What about this condition? Or you know, what about 
putting Harry there on two touch because he's the best player. Can you think you manage that, Harry? Yeah, yeah, I'll have a go at that. So give him the chance, but you know, um, let them play football. And that it, that goes back to that skill that you mentioned before about being able to adapt to yeah. so circumstances. So you've planned for seventeen, eighteen, yeah, and seven turn up. Yeah. Okay, gotta gotta think quickly yeah. here. Or do I have a plan B? Or am I drawing upon what I've what what I've done previously and and use that experience to yeah. to adapt and react? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, at one time I probably would have sweated over it. Oh my God, I've got to change. But now I'm a bit more relaxed. I mean, what what's the worst thing can happen? The kids have a game of football and they score lots of goals. Is that really a bad thing? Yeah. It, it's balance isn't it I, I use that a lot with balance because, because sometimes you get from time to time parents complaining that oh they've just played games tonight you know that, that sort of so, so you, it, part of it is educating what you're actually doing with them and why you're doing what you're doing so as I say I mean I'm in a fortunate position that I've got like 25 years experience my concern is for the grassroots coach who's got two years experience you know and that's why I keep coming back to this idea of epistemologies about you know, it, it's not good enough for national governing bodies just to furnish them with lots of, of plans and drills and practices. Mm. We have to give them the, the cognitive skills, the thinking skills, to be able to challenge what they're doing, why they're doing, how they're doing it. So ultimately, what you want is, what are you doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? You know, what's the reasons behind it? And think you justified. I know you've not been around a, a level one course. I don't imagine for quite a while no, now. But no. that, you, I suppose, you'd be pleased to know that that's the sort of questions that we are we're now asking coaches mm. on the first day of their, their their level one course. So rather than here's twenty games, yeah. um, deliver them one at a time. It's okay. Create create a practice or create a game that you think will uh, deliver yeah. X, or or just show us what you did last time you worked with yeah. your players give us a snapshot of that and importantly tell us why you did it and what yeah. you were hoping the players would get out of that practice that, that's where the governing bodies are moving towards yeah. and, and that is that is exactly right I mean I know there's one governing body who have virtually banished drills and I'm going no I'm not a big fan of lines and drills I'm, I'm not but there would be a right time at the right place for the right reason so, so just saying no drills allowed it no, you're missing the point really. The point is, know what you're doing for what reason. And there might be occasion when doing a drill, a line drill, might be the most appropriate thing, as long as you can work out why you've done what you've done. It's the same as you know the, the might come a time when you can play football in the M6. I doubt it, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, but, but allow people to develop those skills and yeah. then you might have a coaching workforce who know what they're doing and why they're doing what they're doing so if you were if, if I was a coach out there and I perhaps uh, I didn't have access to an FA coach mentor for example yeah how might I go about acquiring a, a mentor or what what's out there that's going to help me to start to develop these skills of expertise right I'll, I'll give you a really simple little process I helped uh, a club and, and I think the club is still delivering it um, I said run, run CPD type events you know, where that? the coaches come together okay. on a particular night and share practices within the club within the club okay um, and, 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 and the process I, I tell them to go through which you'll get buy into is for about 45 minutes do 
do some practices, some shared practices, you know. You might deliver a session that you would do with your kids, somebody else, but for about 45 minutes. And we're doing this where down the pub? Or? No, no, sorry, in, at, at the 3G. Oh, that actually, you know, yeah, right. yeah. yeah, so it's an actual practice. Okay. So, so, so these, you know, what blokes, I know what I'm like, I still think I can play number nine for Newcastle. So there's any opportunity people get to play football, they'll often take the opportunity. Okay, so right, okay, so go down. And tonight we'll have Jack Sharon delivering a practice and such and such deliver a practice. So any volunteers I want to deliver a practice, maybe one or two practices. The next hour, get them to have a game. They all love to play a game, don't they? Have a game. The last hour, which is the most important hour, is go down the pub, get the club to put on some sandwiches, uh, possibly even a free beer, free pint, and get them chatting. Because there's nothing more social than chatting and eating and drinking and get them chatting about the practice and the activities. Now, when I started doing this, I used to uh, leave some laminated cards around with scenarios. What would you do if? What would you do if? What might some of those have been? Uh, Things like um, you've turned up to a match and your goalkeeper hasn't arrived. Who are you going to put in goal? And how are you going to come to a conclusion who's going to go and go on and how are you going to manage that situation funny you should say that because that happened to me on Sunday with the right. Sunday team that I play for right. and with about a minute to go to kick off right. <laughs> uh, uh, Anthony Smith who, who's um, our development manager at Liverpool FA comes up to me and says uh, do you fancy going in goal Jack yeah, yeah 90 but, minutes but how, how are you going to manage it you're going to say first of all you might go through a process of asking for volunteers you might not get any volunteers, then what are you going to do? So put them in different scenarios. Put them in scenarios where, I don't know, I don't know, a kid with Down syndrome's turned up to your club. They want to play and they're dead keen. You've got a, you've got a really good team. How are you going to manage that situation? Do you admit the kid? Of course you do. But how, how are you going to manage it? Have you, have you got a disability club? Should they be in that? So, so put these scenarios and, and basically all these cards were littered around the pub where we had a, had a back room and, and, and the blokes would just chat about these things the next time I did it we didn't need the laminated cards we were just talking about football and football practices so getting people to chat about football and football practices and how they do things is a really really powerful mechanism to get people to share and open up Ideas about and, and, and find challenges in their practice. Oh, I've got these kids. Oh man, they're, 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 they're a riot. They're, you know, they don't listen to a word I say. Oh, it's funny you should say that. I, I, but this is what I did. Try that. All right, yeah, I'll, I'll try that. So just, just having that opportunity to discuss, to chat within those grassroots environments, because you've been in those clubs. A lot of them call themselves clubs, but they're actually separate teams. And then. They hardly ever see anybody else from another team. Some clubs I've been at, they don't even know who else is in the in the club. So social events, social activities that are rooted around coaching, coaching practice are fabulous. That's why I'm, I quite like Hive. So I quite like these conferences that you do. I, I think I think they're great. I I just think we should try and encourage and roll out mini conferences in clubs. It's a great idea. And it, 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 do you still have those cards? Do you still have yeah, the scenarios? Yeah, yeah. You, can, you can have a look I at them. I might have to steal the them pod, off you and podcast, put them up. Yeah, yeah. yeah that would be a great resource that I, we I could put out. Had, I even, uh, you'd be well impressed with this, when I was doing the Mod 1s, I had them 
with uh, FBA laminated mm. like emblem because them because it was part of the mod once it wasn't I asked Pete could I use it because I think they're an important resource to get people just discussing I mean and people discuss it all the time you, you go to any football match me and you you're a Liverpool no Newcastle fan me and you and if I was a Sunderland fan we could go up the same game watch the same game we could have one hell of a conversation about the same game the same facts but coming from from two different perspectives couldn't we? And, yeah. and yet we've seen the same game. But we'll see it through the filter of what often what we want to see. And that is really important. And there's nothing wrong. You might have an A licence, I might have a B licence. Mm. But we still can have that really heated discussion. And I, I've had the discussion with Al Irvine, Chris Sully, guys who play professional football their lives. And the thing that stood them out was that ability to listen and engage on quite a critical level. And just because I hadn't played the game at a certain level, they they weren't patronising, condescending, or anything like that, you know. And I, I, you know, I wasn't seen as a threat. Yeah, yeah I think that's important, isn't it? I think it's absolutely yeah. important. Yeah. Okay. Um, just looking at the notes that we've got up on the screen here, is there anything that from the work that the research that you've been looking at that we haven't discussed yet that that we need to? I think. Well, there's a lot up there, and we could probably spend another podcast, couldn't we? Could probably could, yeah. Stuff. I mean, from your perspective, it's the first time you've seen them. What, what was the thing? Because we went through them earlier, didn't it? Is there anything that sort of jumps out at you? Yeah, one of the messages that you've got up there was saying about how the work that you've took, the mentors and mentees have reported the ability to cover up shortcomings. And yeah. Confidence to overlook weakness is a matter of expertise. Yeah. That was, um, that was no, quite that was striking. Fine. It was a contested view, so the, what, what we found is some mentors believe that it's really important that you are honest and open about where your weaknesses are, and some mentors thought it's really important that you keep that under wraps in some ways because you could open yourself up to losing credibility. That's my suspicion. Is this as a mentor? Yeah, yeah. As, as a mentor, and, and mentees actually. Yeah. And. And, and, and I had a real good chat with some of your colleagues last week, as, as you know, Steve Smithies and, uh, and Andy Summers, and, and they made a really good point to me that to, to add credibility to your role as a mentor, I do wonder that if you actually say to a mentee, I don't know, I'm not sure about that, or don't give an immediate response and answer, it's seen as losing credibility. It's like, it's like asking the teacher to, to ask, answer a question and the teacher doesn't know. I mean, my daughter's come home and said, huh, my teacher didn't even know this. So there's a bit of a credibility gap. So I do sometimes wonder if, you know, you've got your ear license, so you must know everything, Jack. And if I ask you something you don't know, phew, you know, or, or people ask me who won the nineteen thirty-two derby. Well, didn't even know that. Yeah. So I do wonder if it's a bit of that. Yeah, and well, we were talking before we hit record about one of your colleagues who, in that first lecture. All oh, right. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. A, a good friend of mine, very very insightful. Um, with our first years, who were particularly keen um, on on on. You know, writing stuff down and learning stuff, and and you know, remembering stuff and memorising all that sort of stuff. He delivers a lecture, 
and it's about the eighth, ninth, tenth lecture that they've had. So they've been here for about ten weeks, and the students furiously copy stuff down from the whiteboard. Every note is is meticulous that they write down. At the end of the lecture, he said, "Okay, that's the end. You can go." But fifty percent of what I've told you today is nonsense. I've just made it up. If you look carefully, some of the references are Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. And of course, they haven't inspected the references carefully. Your role is to work out what is nonsense. But more importantly, your role is to make sense of those notes. And just copying them down and memorising them is not good enough. Because that is simply copying stuff for the sake of copying stuff. So if... Let's say I was a coach or or maybe even a mentor. Mm. How could I apply that sort of process or that model in in a coaching practice? Well, that's, you know, when when we talk about reflective practice, reflective practice, sometimes I hear when people talk about reflective practice, what they're actually describing is description. Mm. I did this and I did that. I did this, or they watch another practice and Jack did this and then he did that and then he did that, and that seemed really good, I like that, so I'll just do what Jack did. I would argue that when you're watching or when you're in fact coaching yourself, you are reflecting in action, and that comes from, from other models of coaching reflection. Which I'm so sure as it's happening? Yeah, as it's happening. And that takes experience, mm-hmm. don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting, you know, this is a a shift from, 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 for a novice coach, it, it's a real, real challenge. So the questioning is always about, why am I doing what I'm doing? What makes me think that this will work? What are the potential outcomes of what I'm doing? Now the really, the coaches with expertise, what they're often able to do is they're able to deliver practices and they can anticipate outcomes, sometimes a lot of different outcomes, and that before those outcomes actually hit, actually happen, they can amend and adapt the practices very, very quickly. So, for example, really, really simple. Um, you, you, talk, you, you talk to me about planning. Okay, I'm, I'm planning for 12 kids tonight. So I get their tent, there's seven, whatever. I set the, set the area up really, really quickly. And 20, 27 turn up, right? Very quickly, I've worked out that area is too small. In fact, I might need two areas. So it's that reflection in action. I'm working it out all the time. Or I've never seen this group before, and I told I was told there were under 15s. They're actually under fives. So wow, I've got to amend. I've got to adapt my session really, really quickly. Okay. Now, taking it back to to my colleague who just copy this down. If I was that coach. Who went through trolled my YouTube or my high portfolio or my own personal log? Ah, I'll do this practice tonight. It tells me how how big this pitch has got to be, how many balls I need, how many cones I need. With and I've just copied that session. I wouldn't have the skills, those cognitive skills, to work out very very quickly what changes have occurred as those plays are arriving. Got too many, I've got too few. The bigger than I thought, the less experience than I thought. They've got higher ability or less ability. So engaging with learning and considering what are the repercussions of what's in front of me has has got to be the skill that 
coaches need to develop and that's where governing bodies have a responsibility to develop those skills rather than just you know filling the wellies full of drills and practices uh, one of the questions I try and ask myself when I'm creating practices and, and games is if I were playing this mm. how might I bend the rules and, and, and t- exactly and taking my colleagues example as you can imagine um, those students go off in a huff they're really irritated because they've spent an hour copying at least 50% which is nonsense but the point is is they'll come back next time and they'll engage with the content they'll think about the content as it's being delivered that's an important lesson it's absolutely important lesson you know I, I sit in rooms like this and I deliver something and I don't get a question back so my thing is well have they engaged with it have, you know because if they haven't then they're clearly not thinking it through and and my often my worry and you, you've been there haven't you if there's no questions come back then I think right I'm a bit concerned here if they've engaged with it and that might be partly my fault and I accept that responsibility maybe the way I've delivered this has not been the most effective way to generate questioning inquisitive minds or I'm making assumptions that because you know a colleague of mine says do I have to teach for you to learn you know well, th- then you're putting all the responsibility on the teacher on the lecturer on the coach it sounds like that would be a good skill to try and develop even in our players mm, absolutely is, is to try and get them to ask why and mm. to encourage them to, to question absolutely I mean clearly Jack you're taking this in a, in a different direction again but it's an extension of because and this is where you know I mentioned about hoitagogy I think it's absolutely critical that we get players to ask the why question and challenge that's an uncomfortable place for coaches to be because it could be construed as being cheeky could be construed as challenging the coach and that's what I was seeing earlier. Sometimes I see kids not with the skills and, and sometimes they're quite rude. Mm. And I think, is that boredom? Is that, are they fed up getting the head pecked? Or maybe it's just deep frustration that they want to challenge, but they haven't got the skills to challenge. Because at school, that's the last thing you do at school if you want to go yeah. on school, because otherwise you might get sent for detention. So, so, so these are the issues that I'm sort of considering and, and one of my friends always says when a few years ago when England I think it was 2007 or something uh, England were playing a, a World Cup match against Croatia and I'm sure many people remember it qualifying uh, yeah qualifying yeah. and uh, Croatia had a man sent off England were losing 2-1 and um, McLaren was the manager right. yeah. remember the, the umbrella yeah, yeah, remember. scenario yeah. and uh, one of our best players, supposedly one of our best players in the world, um, was looking over the bench to know what to do. You know, they were against 10 men, they were losing 2-1, and they needed clear instructions from the manager what to do. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, well, where, where's the independence of thought there? Where's, as a, is it just one way, black and white, this is what you must do? So, so I, do, I do begin to wonder this whole infrastructure about coach education and coaching that puts so much emphasis on on coaches, level one, level twos. And there's an expectation because you are qualified, because you've got all that knowledge, it's your role to tell all those 
players what to do. And sometimes we get that from the parents as well, don't we? Oh yeah. You got your A license. You got your B license. Um, we pay twenty pound a month. Coach my kid. And their epistemology is often is I pay this amount of money for you to coach them. I don't pay this amount of money for you let to let them play games. Yeah. They can play games anywhere. So so there's a whole system and infrastructure around the need for you to coach. And like it says to be seen to And be seen to look to know your stuff. Yeah. So so, you know, for coaches, you know, I I know I'd, I'd you know, the number of times when I worked in an academy, Jack, and they would be talking about stuff, I don't know, swirly motions in midfield or something, I don't have a clue, I just nod your head in the right right place because you cannot be seen not to understand the more sophisticated aspects of of, of coaching. Um, so I think there is a little bit of that still that exists. Yeah. Is there anything that um, we haven't, I haven't asked you that, you want to get out? No, I think I think we've we've had a right good go at covering Grand everything, but but to leave it on a on a line, I've learnt lots just having this discussion. So I've developed my understanding through just having a discussion with you, Jack. And I would leave that with with all coaches that there's a real opportunity to learn just by discussing stuff with with their peers yeah. or with people. Who are more experienced or even less experienced, and no distractions. And the fact, yeah, yeah, no. It, I, first, it's been great just you know, again having that opportunity to, to talk with you, with yourself. No distractions. Yeah, phones off, and, phones off. and just have a you know good chat about yeah. about coaching and, and sport. Yeah, like likewise. So no, it's been great. Thank I appreciate that. Much, Jack. Cliff, no, great. And uh, if if coaches want to or, or anyone out there listening want to find out more about the work that you've put out there. Probably best if they email me on my FA email, okay, which is uh, Cliff Olson O-L-S-O-N, at the FA dot com. Yeah, brilliant, great stuff. Well, uh, that sets us up for a nice part two at some point in the in the Super. future. Cliff, Look forward to it. Great stuff. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please help spread the word or leave us a review on iTunes. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. You can reach me on Twitter at JackWalton1. And don't forget to follow Liverpool FA at Liverpool underscore CFA. See you next time.